Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator from Tribeca, Chris Dorr, and tonight's guests, Chris Keneally, Carolyn Kaplan, and Jason Cleo. Hi, I'm Chris Dorr. I'm moderating the panel today. Um, thank you all for coming in the rain. And, and, and uh, I'm glad we have as close to a, as big an audience as the last panel had, though not as young, <laughs> which is fine for me. So, um, we're here to talk about Side by Side, which is a wonderful film. And uh, for those of you who had not a chance to see it, it's, it's come, there are some screenings coming up, though I've been told many of them are sold out, but it'll be um, Justin, who is one of the producers, will uh, talk about that in a bit. One of the things that, that I think that uh, I would say is a general opening to what we're going to talk about is that we're cl it's clear we're in the middle of some very large transformation that's defined by all kinds of digital things, the internet and other kinds of digital, digital transformations. Uh, Chris Keneally, who's to my right, um, and who, who's directed this movie, he and his partners uh, really figured out a way to tell a very interesting tale about how the digital transformation is particularly affecting film and in that photochemical process that has been going on for many years and how that transition to digital is changing both in gaining things for us and possibly losing certain things for us. And that's what we want to talk about today. So what I want to do first is have each person introduce themselves and then we'll circle around. Then Chris, I think, can set the context for it and then we can jump in. The other thing we want to do is be able to take questions from the audience, which we'll do. And I think if, if people are game, if people want to jump in and ask a question as we're going through, that's fine as well. So we don't have to go to a formal Q&A if people are burning with questions. So let's uh, jump start in by the introduction. So start with Chris. Chris. Hi, I'm Chris Keneally. I'm the director of Side by Side. Hi, I'm Caroline Kaplan. I'm an independent producer, and I was a long time ago, a co-founder of Indigen, which was a digital film company, and I also used to work at IFC for many years. Uh, my name is Jason Cleo. I'm also an independent film producer, and uh, in a very similar era, started Blow Up Pictures, a uh, digital production company, and then HGNet Films, that I started with Mark Cuban and Todd Wagner and Joanna Vicente, who was a high-definition production company. I'm Justin Slaza, a producer of Side by Side, and uh, just want to say Carolyn and, Caroline and Jason were both subjects of our film and uh, were gracious enough to come here today, and we really appreciate them. So, Chris, why don't you start telling us a little bit sort of how you came to make the movie, who you worked on, I know you worked with Keanu on it, and how that sort of evolved, and how you've decided to do it on this topic, so. Sure. Um, Keanu and I were working on a movie called Henry's Crime, which is a movie that Keanu was producing and also acting, and it was one of the first times he produced, and he was a very hands-on producer. He was at you know, the sound mix, the DI, all the cost report meetings, all the boring post-production things that a lot of producers sometimes don't necessarily want to be involved in, and he was very curious about how everything worked, and we, he and I had a lot of discussions about film, filmmaking, digital technology, the way things were shifting and changing, and uh, we were doing a, a color correct at Technicolor, and it was just interesting to have the, the colorist, who was kind of a young guy doing the digital color, and an older color timer who did the photochemical color on the film, 
and just the different language and vocabulary they used. And Keanu said, hey, you know, this is really interesting. Why don't you and I go ahead and make a movie about this? And uh, he had seen another documentary I had made a while back, and he said, do, do you want to direct it? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Now, now one of the things I, I remember from the movie is you, you interviewed a lot of people, a lot of, you know, ranging from, you know, people making very low-budget independent movies to big, expensive, special effects heavy movies. And just talk a little bit about that process, because you really captured both a wide range of points of view as well as people working in all aspects of film. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. I mean, the, in the documentary, you kind of set out a roadmap or a rough sketch of kind of what your topic is and what you want to cover. But as you start talking to people and researching, the idea for the movie changes a little bit, or you learn things that you didn't know beforehand. But we interviewed probably about 140 people, and um, probably 70 people actually made it into the movie. So we actually have this giant, you know, amount of material from you know these top filmmakers and producers and image makers and scientists of this day and age that I think will be a resource that can be hopefully handed forward uh, someday. Um, but yeah, one of the things is with digital, I think early on it was a lot of independent producers um, and filmmakers using it because it was so accessible, easy to use, inexpensive, but early on in the you know, mid-90s, late-90s, it didn't really have the resolution no one really thought it looked like film or could really compare to film, and they weren't trying to. They were indie films. Then there was sort of another avenue that, that brought digital into modern-day filmmaking, which was more of sort of the George Lucas, James Cameron, the big visual effects heavy movies that saw this technology and said, hey, this is actually easier to use and manipulate in the post-process to do special effects. So it's almost two things that you don't normally associate with each other, which is independent film and big budget visual effects movies, but sort of every artist kind of took the technology and used it how, how they wanted to, to tell the stories they wanted to. I wanted, uh, I wanted to ask Caroline and also Jason, because both of you really got involved in doing digital filmmaking at a pretty early stage, correct? You want to talk a little bit about sort of how each of you got involved and how you, you know, what the struggles were and what you discovered that really worked, what didn't, and how it's evolved. So, Caroline, maybe you could jump in and talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, well, in the late 90s, I was um, head of production at IFC Network and Entertainment, and there was a director named Gary Winnick who passed away a year ago, but at that time he had made a bunch of movies. and. He was frustrated like a lot of people were about, you know, how hard it is sometimes to get your movie made. And he got a video camera, and, and along with Fisher Stevens, they just went out and made this film called Sam the Man. And they just took this um, PAL, right? So it was the, in the foreign format. I think it was a... Better resolution. Yeah, I think, right, a little better resolution. I, the, the post was kind of a nightmare. I think it was a PD-150, is that something? Yeah. And it was this big, and they got all their pals, like Annabelle Shiora and John Slattery, and these really great New York actors, and they made this movie. And Gary, though, it, it opened this world up to him. He was like, oh my god, you can just shoot and shoot and shoot, which, when you see the movie, you'll see that a lot of actors talk about. And I could just go anywhere, and I was invisible, and I could capture all this stuff in New York that I would never have been able to do. I was this like tiny little, without a lot of thinking though about really what it looked like, just sort of make it straightforward. And he really felt like, I want to open this up to everybody I know. I want to do this. I want to make this a reality 
for all these directors I know who in between other movies just want to shoot, want to make, want to create. So he came to us at I, and he partnered with John Sloss, who then came up with this great economic model about how it would become kind of a partnership. And John and Gary then came to Jonathan Searing and myself at IFC, and we agreed to, to do it with them. And it was really, it was actually successful in so many ways. A, that we got amazing directors to, to want to tell great stories, and, and B, um, the technology wasn't really appropriate, frankly, for movie making that as, to the extent that, but yet, you know, the story was the story. And, and to, to Chris's point, people weren't expecting it to approximate film at all. It was kind of like, this is a video movie, you know? Although, as it does point out in the documentary, um, you know, Ellen Curris shot Personal Velocity, which was Rebecca Miller's unbelievably beautiful um, movie that was an indigent film, and um, she won Best Cinematography at Sundance for that. So she really worked within what, that, what the capabilities were, even on those cameras at that time, and made it so reflective of the hum humanity of that story. That, so that's sort of my early foray. So Jason. So. Yeah, Jason. Uh, well, it was really artistic desperation. Um, uh, we were at this moment where film was costing more and more, and um, uh, people seemed to just be really um, uh, confined by the weight of the technology and the apparatus. And then uh, unions were also sort of pushing down on independent filmmakers and sort of saying, well, you're going to pay, in fact, which is still true, more to the unions than Hollywood does because we don't have this huge deal with you. And we were so frustrated by by that situation that, you know, we just had this moment where we realized, you know, we had this mantra, it was like the size of your budget is in inverse proportion to the artistic freedom you have. And that was setting people up to be in a situation where every movie they were making was like a calling card to go to Hollywood because they had to somehow get real money to make a movie. And we didn't want to make those movies. We wanted to make pure art Films. We want to make movies that directors had complete control over. And um, we heard of this movie, The Celebration, that was a can that was shot on a, a mini DV camera. And we just said, digital studio. We're going to start a digital studio. And this uh, wonderful uh, investor, Chuck Rusbossen, who was a Bear Stearns guy, he, he, he sort of he, he created this model that was very interesting for investors because he said, look, they're going to make movies for under a million dollars but they're going to be worth more because of the freedom all this technology allows them. And we didn't really know if that was true at the time, but it was true because of what Caroline was talking about. You could shoot over and over again and the act, you know, it was the first time that performances in independent film could actually be similar to Hollywood performances because directors were not having to only take two takes or three takes. No, but also I think beyond, you know, just the how long you can shoot for without changing your, your, your magazine. I think, you know, that just to be able to be that intimate, you know, in, with such, you could really just with a camera, your operator, your director, your actor, and your, you know, a couple of other people, that's for a certain kind of movie or a certain kind of scene or a certain kind of moment, that can be incredibly, I think that is a very, and I know yeah. Keanu, you know, talks about that too, you know, it's very special and unique 
thing and, about and, digital. And speed, you know, just moving around quickly. Yeah, Justin? But, but, you know, the thing is that just to, just to kind of weigh in on the other side, you know, we also interviewed Christopher Nolan for this, who has a very different take on this. It says, you know, people can only concentrate, crews can only concentrate for a certain amount of time. So anything that gets beyond 10 minutes at the maximum is really just too much for the crew and everyone to focus. And, uh, and that is the kind of the pace of a film set that's using, using, uh, using film to shoot. Um, you know, where then again we have David Lynch who says you can get in there and get a thing and let things roll for 40 minutes at a time and talk to the actor while you're getting a take. So it, it really goes in both directions. And it's just like you know, Keanu likes to reset. John Malkovich, who comes from, uh, who's also in the film, comes from a theater tradition. Just says, hey, can we go? Can we go? Can we go? He feels like there's so much waiting around on a set. So I think it really depends on the kind of film and the type of film we make. So it's just there's all different and, ways. And to the it. approach of the director, absolutely their sensibility. And That's I right. and I definitely would say that early on, the, the the trick was right finding the right movies that would be appropriate to make in this way because what started to happen at some point, which I to me, you know, I was part of this too, is you know, you think, oh, you know what? Let me just make that film that we were gonna make for like $10 million. Let's just make it for like $200,000. The same exact, you know, just on video. You know, and just like, and at that time. But, but you did was, that very well though. Yes. One of them was uh, the Thanksgiving movie. Oh, the Pieces of April. Right. Yeah, that's a good example, that a good yeah. Example that is a good example. But at the same time, it's still a small and intimate film. And I do think that um, it, it was about, like Rick Linklater is such an innovator. So you know, he did an indigent film called Tape, which was, and then Waking Life, which was an indigent. That was obviously a new kind of animation, which was really exciting. But someone like Rick, I think, is really amazing in experimenting with, with the art form, technology, everything, all the time. Scanner, obviously, is such an incredible movie, and how the economics relate to that. So. Chris, one question I had for you is, uh, is, is one of the things that comes out in the movie, uh, the film that you did, is um, this kind of, some DPs are a little nervous about all this stuff, or they're going like, you know, because they're used to having a certain kind of control, and, and, you know, and because typically, you know, when you shoot in 35, you don't know what it's going to look like until a day or so later when you're screening the dailies and you know that everyone's looking at the DP saying how's it going to look well we'll find out don't worry it's all taken it's all taken care of whereas with digital it comes much more quickly maybe you could speak a little bit of sort of how you saw DPs responding to this big change and how they you know feel about it you know one of the big differences when when you're shooting on film you really don't see what you've shot until that film goes off to the lab and gets processed and printed just like you drop your photos off at the photo booth and you get it the next day and then you see what you did and if you would made a mistake the day before you know you're screwed when you shoot on digital there's monitors on the set the producers can look at it the director can look at it everybody can look at what you're shooting right then and that takes a little bit of the power away from the director of photography or the cinematographer so now they have other people looking over their shoulder judging what they're doing while it's happening in real time and that happens all the way down the line through post-production. There's more people that can manipulate or have a say in how that final image is going to look. Whereas when you shot film, pretty much what you shot and got in camera was what you were going to have at the end of the line. There was a little bit of manipulation, but with digital, it's, it's taken it to a whole new level. So uh, what, um, so you had a question from the front. Go ahead and jump in. Oh, sorry. Um, the, 
One of the things that is articulated in the movie by some of the people interviewed is, is, is there are certain things that have been lost or are lost by the transition. And uh, one of the points you made is about control, but there's also the sense that the photochemical process that 35 millimeter film has is there's a kind of, I don't know, purity to it, there's a kind of excellence to it that may be harder to attain in digital. And, and, and I just wonder what your thoughts were about and how you saw that play out. And in, in, in you probably both, Caroline and, and Jason, have experienced this probably in dealing, because you've worked both in both mediums. And well, how do you see that evolving? Is that a big issue, a small issue? What do you think? I mean, I think economically now, it's, it, the conversation is you're going to shoot digitally. I mean, particularly on smaller movies. But I, ironically, they started making this film when I made, was making a film with Keanu that we were a tiny movie that we were shooting on Super 16. We were shooting on film, which was kind of a funny choice, and video. I mean, it was two different mediums, right? So, but that was sort of a funny thing and what went along with that because I think, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, that film still is, has qualities. I mean, it's approaching it and certainly there's cameras now and it's really wonderful. But film still has qualities and um, a spectrum, really, that you well, can push further, right, than did I think that's the case. Yeah, just there, well, just I mean, there, the, there's, there are arguments. People will make arguments that, there, the, the, that film has qualities that capture images better than digital can now. And there's a, it's a debate. Uh, digital is improving all the time. But I will say that I think one of the biggest differences is and we heard this from a number of people we interviewed, is that when you're running film on a set, you feel money running through the camera. You feel there's a certain pressure, and there's everybody kind of, kind of focuses more um, than when you're shooting digital. And I think that you know, with digital, you can shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot, which is great. But then it shifts a lot of your costs into post, where you then have huge amounts of footage. Your editors get mountains of footage that they have to go through, and then all that back-end process has to be done. So there, we heard a lot of um, some of the older DPs we interviewed, whether it's Vittorio Storaro or Dick Pope or uh, uh, Michael Chapman, talking about the fact that there's a lack of discipline now with the digital shooting. Um, so there's less planning that goes into it. There's more, it's more carefree. But that, really what that does is it shifts the economics to post. And, uh, and it's, it's, just, it's just the nature of it. And also just, you still are always pressed for time and you, right, you can't really just shoot and shoot. I mean, you're still always gonna have to make your day, even if you're shooting on digital, you're still crazed. And, but yes, the post-process is but, much But in terms of the, uh, the artistic loss of film, I feel it very deeply. Um, you know, it's very ironic because I'm one of the great lovers of film that I was one of the people who helped usher in this digital revolution. Uh, I love, Peter Bogdanovich once said, it's all downhill from nitrate. You know, the first film we had was actually, it's called the silver screen, because it was silver. Silver was in, on the screen that reflected, and silver was in film. And nitrate, which was extraordinarily flammable, anyone who's ever seen a real nitrate print, I don't know if you guys have, there are some places that show them, you, it explodes, so you need an actual double exit projection booth with instant ejection from it because of the so film. Projectionists can live. The projectionists can live, yes. But nitrate was extraordinarily beautiful. Then all the stocks we've lost through history in black and white. Technicolor, three, pro, you know, three strip technicolor, 
one of the most beautiful processes ever. These cannot be replicated digitally, and grain can't be replicated digitally because grain is random, and we can try, but we don't quite. And also, flicker from 24 frames, and even, you know, mistakes, the fact that the gate was never quite perfect and that the claw that pulled down the gate moved a little bit added to a poetry. Poetry is not clarity. Poetry is all sorts of things, and we have lost a lot of that, and it's very hard to get that back. But I will say that what I, what I love, <laughs> I, I hear you, but in the film, what I was fascinated by was, you know, when you make prints of movies, the conversation about that and how, you know, we've all been to a movie theater and seen a movie we've worked on and literally been devastated that it looks like that because it's not really what it looked like. Because it's gone it's, through the gate so many times. Yeah, it's been or ruined. just like they printed it on, after, you know, the first amount of prints, they'll print the... The wrong, the wrong or just stock. Whatever, or the projection. I mean, I think Scorsese says, right, the projectionist is the ultimate auteur because he's doing all this, he, she's doing all the settings. And truthfully, in that res re regard, when you're dealing with the medium where not only is everyone a control freak in their personality, but, the, but the, you know, well, all the contributions, when the DP and the director have done that, to be able to digitally then project it right. directly, I think, is something really exciting. Well, there's, there's an interesting phenomenon that's going on in the music business a little bit, you know, which is you know, music obviously is converted to digital in major ways. But then you, I, I have a friend I worked with at a, at, a, at a digital company a number of years ago who was, I was in the video side, he was on the music side. He's an expert in digital distribution. Now what is he opened four years ago in Silver Lake in LA is a vinyl store. Because he really likes vinyl and, you know, and, and to his luck, Pete Townsend happened to be the first guy to walk in and Pete Townsend was going, wow, this is great. But the point is that sort of what we might consider to be archaic forms of containing audio files, which would be a vinyl record, really actually has a following, that people want to have that. They want to have a down you know, turntables. And, and also another phenomena I've seen is, I was talking to a friend of mine whose son is you know, in college, and he's fascinated by 70s recording technology and the certain kinds of mics that they use because it produces a certain kind of sound, which all predates the conversion to digital. And you wonder if there will be similar forms that will evolve in film where certain things that were great about that former technology can be brought back and be used. I don't know if that's possible, but just well, I think, I think and, and also to this point, to extend that, one of, the, one of the last chapter of our film is about archive and archival. Right. And, and, and um, I think Michael Goy, who's the uh, head of um, the ASC, said there's been 80 different formats of video since video has been introduced and we can only, that half of them can't be played anymore. David Fincher talks about work he did in the 80s that you just can't watch anymore because there's just no machines to play the tapes that he has it on. Um, and I think, then, and this is something that's very close to uh, Martin Scorsese's heart, and he discusses this too, that really the only way, and, and this is again, too, this is debatable, but really the only way we have to preserve these films is actually on film, and uh, which is, there's an irony in that. Uh, again, it's debatable whether that's, you know, the case, there's people who argue against that, well, but it is, it is a, it's true. But it is an important point too about how to archive films, you know, or anything that's captured in a visual, you know, a moving image, and that there's a certain fragility to digital that people assume doesn't exist but does exist, that you know, hard drives can decay or be wiped out, and, and if that's the only form your film is in, what do you do? So, um, but I thought, I actually think that's one of the strengths of the movie is that, that, that you cycle through all of the issues 
and actually talk about some of the pitfalls that, 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 are, that are occurring at a time when it seems inevitable everything's going to go digital. So um, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about some of the other issues you came across, Chris. Sure. One of the things, you know, Keanu was bringing up a lot and would ask people was, you know, now that things are digital and you can manipulate it so much with visual effects and things, what you're actually seeing on screen is not really what was shot in the camera and does that cause you know, some sort of loss of reality you know, when we're watching movies? We're not really seeing what was shot on camera. And there's a, a funny clip of him asking people those things. One of the things I really liked about the movie, too, was the fact that you, what you also you bring up, you hit, on one sort of hand, you have George Lucas, and then you have Dogma, the Dogma, you know, Lars von Trier, that's very low budget, and showed clips from Celebration, and then you show clips from, and, and, and Lucas, what was interesting, too, is he brings up something that I had forgotten, is in what year was it, 2000? That he, he basically, when he basically told the film industry, it's all digital, guys. I'm just going to, my next Star Wars picture is only going to be shot on a digital camera. And people were screaming at him, thinking he was like betraying them. He's, still, he's still angry about you that. You can tell, I yeah. I mean, and here's one of the most powerful men in the film business, and they're going after him. It was, it was fascinating. When we interviewed him, he was so fired up to finally kind of have his say about digital and the way he was treated when he first was sort of trying to push this for him. He kind of sat on the edge of the seat the whole time. I think Keanu asked about half a question and George just went on a, you know, hour long rant and then stood up, <laughs> took the mic off. Thanks for coming. And, and you know, he was really nice and he was all great, but he was, he had a, a bone to pick because he really, I, I think he's kind of a visionary, whether you like his movies or not, at least on the technological side, he saw that digital needed to improve to a certain resolution to be accepted and that there was a way to edit digitally, do visual effects digitally, and distribute exhibit, exhibit and digitally. exhibit digitally. And he came, he thought about this, at least he started to do it about 10 years ago, and here we are, you know, 2012, and it's kind of just getting to a tipping point maybe, so he was, you know, ahead it, of his time. It's also interesting, because, you know, he was the one who created THX, the audio standard, that he literally forced theaters to take because he basically said, you either take this and have an audio standard and a visual standard that meets my specs, or you don't get the next Star Wars. It's your option. And he did a lot of it with his own money and his own investments and his own company. So I give him a lot of credit for you know, taking that in initiative and pushing all, this, all these things forward. Yeah. Um, any questions from the audience? I want to let people jump in. Um, woman in the middle? Go ahead. Hi. Um, my question is about storytelling and how you decide to structure this film. Um, when you have so many people you're interviewing, how do you keep track of like, the initial vision of what you want to you know, create on film and going from pre-production research to production and then obviously post? How do you keep yourself on track with the new research, the new technology, the new voices that come into the to yeah, the it, it was it was definitely difficult, and we probably didn't stay on track, right? We we uh, it took us a little longer than we thought, but um, yeah, the story is constantly changing, and the, the way we had it formatted at, at one point, you know, kind of followed the path of the workflow of a movie and how digital affected each of these areas, and really close to the end of editing, kind of came up with an idea that followed it more chronologically, and that seemed to tell a better story, and you kind of 
watching digital, you know, it's, it's, it's great moments and it's weaknesses and it was kind of like, started to be like following a, a character more and I think it made it more of an interesting story, but you know, it, it, was, a, it was a long process, but you know, it's better than having like a real job and doing <laughs> manual labor or something, so I'm not gonna complain about it. So, someone else had a question over here on the, on the side. Uh, hi, my name is Spencer Gordon. I'm getting ready to embark on a uh, documentary film, and what I'm finding is I'm up against multiple formats. So what's the best way to handle multiple formats? What kind of multiple formats? Well, digital. So like, I'm going to be using like a Hero, and then mm -hmm. like the D800, and then like a P7000. So um, are you, why are you doing that? It's a very small budget. We got to go in kind of like under the wire. Oh, I got you. So I got to be using very small cameras at times. Well, just speak different looks. very carefully to everybody. You know, to post in your case will come before production, because uh, you know I made I've made a number of multi-format films. I did Redacted with Brian De Palma, where we shot on all sorts of different formats and. Uh, uh, we spent more money <laughs> in post trying to fix issues because sometimes we would shoot with uh, an overly clear camera and would have to degrade it to make it look the way Brian wanted because he wanted it to look like it was a handicap and sometimes vice versa, which was very difficult to deal with. Um, so, you know, don't shoot anything before you have talked to someone in post-production who understands exactly how, you know, talks you through every single format that you're gonna deal with and test them before you do anything, like test 10 seconds of each or a couple minutes and have them go through the workflow, like a tiny minute, you know, 20 second movie that goes, deals with every format and go through the workflow to make sure that when you, what you get at the end is what you thought of in the beginning. Sorry to jump in, yeah, you, but you, you, I've dealt you, with this. It, well, Another way to express it is it may be that the single most important part of your budget, if you have a budget, is to hire a very experienced post-production person who can, you know, guide I mean, you before you start shooting. It depends the, the kind of movie you're doing also. I mean, if, if you're low budget and that's the way you can get it done, I mean, I feel like in a way also once you get it into the digital world, into the Avid or the Final Cut Pro, if you can make those transitions from those cameras, you know, maybe you're not, they're not gonna all look like they were shot on the same camera, but maybe that's not, I don't know what you're going for, I don't know your project, but you know, there, there's ways, there's tools that you can manipulate the things to get them close and that, you know, it, it depends on the story you're trying to tell, but we shot with a, you know, with 5D and with, with, the, with the Panasonic camera, which are totally different cameras and totally different codecs and things like that and you know, you, if you're really looking for it, you may be able to tell some differences, but, it, you know, it, it depends on the story. But if you're trying to match them, that's yeah. the, yeah. trying to match them is the biggest problem. I mean, that, then you're really, you really have to be incredibly careful. Question uh, down here. Um, your, your doc uh, is about the digital revolution, uh, but the film also makes the case for the fact that the digital revolution is really over and now we're, we're not in a reign of terror, but a, a reign of adjustment and accommodation, et cetera. I write for an exhibitor's magazine and it seems that in the theatrical, in the theater world, that 
digital is it? We're, we're just about almost there. The tipping point, we're just about over it. But what, what is your impression uh, from having talked to so many people across so many uh, disciplines in, uh, in film? I think we're at a tipping point. I mean, it was people like Jason and Caroline who were kind of the, the avant-garde of the first people to kind of use this technology. And you guys probably got a lot of the, the pushback and the critique about how it looked and what are you doing and you're betraying film and things like that. But if it wasn't for people like this, digital wouldn't be to the area that it is today where it's almost side by side with film in image quality. And that was always the last kind of frontier about it. No one really argued that film was necessarily easier or cheaper or more available, but they would always say, well, the image isn't as good as film. And I think we're getting to a point where that argument is, you know, it's kind of more opinion than, than fact. But I also think what interests me so much about the documentary I was saying earlier is it, it goes so far beyond, right, the conversation just about the look of a film or digital versus film, which is really, of course, it's really interesting. But what's really interesting is, is the bigger issues of where we are in this world, how people are, how are we distributing movies? I mean, I, I suppose I, I, I've worked in distribution and, you know, it's really tough business and it's changing a lot too and the economics are just more difficult and how social media is being used to really reach an audience without the traditional P&A. You know, there's so many things, how you can directly, um, it, with di if the digital uh, production and your digital, you could sort of just directly beam it, I suppose, right, to the theater, self-distribution, all those things are just, it's really, it's really the, com it's the conversation. And when Danny Boyle says that he, in the documentary, he says, what does he say exactly? If you're not, how does he? He says something like, if, if you're, you're not, not in the conversation, it's your time or, to it's get your time out of your, or your dealing time with passed, digital, okay. then your time's passed. And, and I think that's true, not about whether you shoot on film or, or digital, but, but if you're not trying to at least be in the conversation at all about where it's all going and how we're reaching people and how stories are being told, how technology's changing the kinds of stories that are being told, or is it? and who's seeing these stories and how are we monetizing it because it's a business, then I do think it's probably, so I just think that's what's so interesting. It's the kind of topic that everyone in the film industry, right, both independent and in Hollywood, I think are, con are really talking about right now, so. Ladies and gentlemen, I just want to say we only have time for two more questions. Okay. okay? Um, these two gentlemen down here, I think, first row and then second row. Hi, thank you um, very much. I appreciate the discussion a lot and uh, of course your efforts to make this uh, very important um, documentary and film but um, the question in the end for me is really as well are we getting from this new format or from digital through digital film in the end of the day really better movies because suddenly you feel 20 films can be made for the price of one does this increase the quality in the end I, I think that's a matter of opinion I mean movies were made on film for a hundred of about a hundred years and there were a lot of crappy movies that came out on film just because they were made on film didn't make them good and I think the same thing with digital just because it's made on digital doesn't make it bad or good it's it's who you know who's using the tool 
And what I think is great is the kind of democratization that more people are able to actually go out and make movies and tell stories. You don't have to be uh, go to film school and be or as someone who has a lot of money or be in the studio system or live in America or Hollywood. You can be anywhere in the world, and if you can get your hands on a digital camera, which they're more and more available, and you have a good story to tell and you care about what you're capturing, I think you can. I think more stories are out there, and therefore more better stories are out there, in my opinion. One of my favorite quotes, oh, hello, hi. One of my favorite quotes is from Robert Bresson, who certainly only shot on film, but he says, you know, sort of a commandment of his is, make visible what without you may never have been seen. And I think that the democratization that you're talking about enables films to exist that could never, ever exist in any other way. So, yes, we lose, but of course we gain. And that was a similar conversation going on, you know, when the whole independent scene broke through. And I think Jeff Gilmore in the film talks about the increase of submissions, right, just alone. And at that time, we were like, oh my god, all these people are you know, hawking their goods and putting, mortgaging their home, parents' homes and stealing their credit cards and making movies, and now there's so many movies, and does that mean they're all gonna be terrible? And it's like, yeah, a lot of them will be really terrible and they'll never get seen, and the ones that are really amazing and that where somebody has a real voice, because even if the film isn't a masterpiece, it's really exciting to see a, a filmmaker express themselves and you know that they are a director and that is thrilling and that can be in any format in my opinion so I think that's what's exciting and what you were saying earlier just even geographically how that's possible it's you, you can live pretty much anywhere which I find exciting one more question thank you very much for the discussion oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. thank you very much for the discussion um, as a veteran of radio uh, CBS and NPR I started off doing audio and I went through maybe 15, 20 years ago the same transition from working and editing and analog and then I was part of the generation that went to digital and listening and reporting and recording all these different things in digital and there was this very same sort of debate that was going on then and some people said oh I don't know if we if it's any good can you do it better but the advantages were monumentally similar where I would instead of me being on the street or reporting with a ton of equipment I have a microphone and I can go live and do something on the network and get it done right away it's kind of equivalent with this and now I'm doing a documentary where I'm shooting all in digital I didn't come to the to the visual realm until um, until digital really came forward and that's where I'm actually shooting and getting things done now and one of the things that Yes, as, a, as someone who actually makes this and made reports and did all these other things, I always had in mind what the user was going to use and is it better for the person, the people or the distribution actually being able to see it and get it and how they're actually listening to it. Because if you're out on the road and you're doing an interview and you make it sound pristine or you get the right analog sound but they're listening to it in the car with the window down and it doesn't make any difference, you can't tell. And right now you have the same thing. You have a beautiful film and you meant it to be watched in this one perfect screen in a movie, but someone's watching it on their iPhone when they're walking down the street, you know, with the subway going, does it still look just as good? And a lot of times, I think the, the ability to do it a little bit quicker and do it in a much more efficient way, as someone who produces, you might want to understand and keep in mind all the different ways that your film is getting shot. I might be crazy, but I'm just wondering what you think about that as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, it, we have a great quote in the, in the film from Greta Gerwig who talks about this specifically and she says, you know, she says, I'm on the, riding on the subway and I see somebody watching a movie on their iPhone and I just think, ugh, and then she catches herself and she says, but who am I to say that that's not a good way to watch this? Like, if they want to watch it that way, that's great. So I think it's really, I think it really, it really, really uh, has all different kinds of meanings. It really depends. I mean, I think people are still going to the theater to see things on a big screen. You pick up stuff on the big screen you would never pick up on, a, on an iPhone. Um, somebody else, I forget who it was that we interviewed, was talking about watching on an iPad and you can watch it close to their face and it, they feel immersed in it even though they're sitting on an airplane. Um, I think Kiana's I talking. Mean, I haven't seen the movie yet, yeah, but yeah, I think I, that was I, me. I think I don't know if we made it in the film, but you were. So I think it was you. But uh, and then you know, Kiana's talking about though the experience of sitting in the theater with other people, which I still, in a perfect world, think is yeah. pretty this, the best because but, you're just the energy and the and the moments, and it really is a sh of the shared experience. But yeah. then I guess. The, the, I can never pronounce their name. Wachowskis talk about, well, it's going to be a virtual shared experience, and that's going to be more powerful than a, which I'm too old to understand that. But I, People I, can comment. You know, you watch something and you're commenting back and forth, which you don't really do in the movies, or you tell someone to be quiet if they do. In New York, in New York you do. So. Um, and then Brad, yeah, Bradford Young talks about watching Steel Magnolias at, in, in his bedroom, like you know, keeping his iPhone under the pillow to watch that and crying by himself while he's watching Steel Magnolias. It's like, he's like, this is great, you know? So I think it's, it's, it's one of those things that have the way we watch films changed, yes. What does it mean? I don't know. But, but there is one, one argument that I think is very interesting that people are talking about that, since I haven't seen the film, I don't know if it's in the film. But, uh, you know, I really do believe that we have to start making different, like, our edits have to be multi-format. Like, if I, someone's going to watch my movie on an iPhone, I would really like to recut my whole movie for that iPhone. Because, and, and some people won't want to do that. But I think it would be really help us to have that. You know, there's a reason that television has generally a different language than Cinemascope. And you would want, the, I think the director would want to be able to take advantage of, of adapting your film for each format it's going to be in. Okay. So more money in post again. Yeah. Thank you more very money much for coming. Save your money for post.